hello and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. I'm your host, Laura Camacho, and you are in the right place if you want to learn how to communicate better so that people do what you want them to do so that you get more green lights, you have more influence, better receptivity to your ideas, which transfers into promotions and raises and people doing what they should do because you're helping them through your communication. So welcome. We have a great guest today. His name is Mike Acker. He is also a communication coach. His specialty is public speaking and his thing is confidence. So we're gonna learn all about confidence. Before I bring you Mike, I want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by chapter 11 of the book, The Practical Guide to Effective Communication. I've gotten so much good feedback on that chapter. It probably is the best chapter for you if you are already pretty solid with communication, but you just want to get better, or maybe you're newly promoted or about to be promoted. Chapter 11 in my book, The Practical Guide to Effective Communication, is all about your points of view. And here's the thing that a lot of people when they make it to director, we'll say in a company, and then they go up to vice president, the titles and the roles can change a little bit depending on the size of the company. But at some point, the company wants to hear more your ideas about the future of the company, your strategic ideas, rather than the state of the union, you know, rather than just a quarterly business report or monthly business review or product review, they want to know what does Stanley think that the company should be doing in the future or what is keeping Stanley up at night? That's what they want to know. But nobody tells you that except me and maybe a few other people, but not very many people. So it becomes more about you expressing your points of view. So there's a little summary of chapter 11 in that book. It's on Amazon and you can get it paperback or you can get a PDF copy. And without further ado, I'm going to bring you Mike Acker. So Mike, welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. We're super excited to have you here to lay out some wisdom bombs on confidence so we can stop second guessing ourselves and just say the thing and get the promotion and get the green lights. But first of all, before we get into that, I want you to tell us what was your path? How did you become this expert in confidence particularly? I find that fascinating. Yeah, so I always tell people that some people, they're born into a family that they learn everything that they know. So it comes into this proclivity path. They're born to it or they're born into the practice of it. For me, I had a little bit of proclivity, but I actually had all kinds of things that took away my confidence, like a speech impediment, moving to Mexico when I was 10 years old, learning how to speak a different language. So for anybody here who you are speaking another language or English is your second language, I totally understand. I had to speak Spanish, the second language. So I had to find a path to confidence there. So really, I had some proclivity, but not a lot. In fact, I had some proclivity that took away from it towards speech impediment, but I had to overcome different major turning points in my life in communication, that speech impediment, second language, returning to the United States and learning. One of the major turning points in my communication career, besides those aspects of growing up in a second language and overcoming speech impediment, was debate. Someone saw something in me when I was in college. I got up in front of people. I had learned some confidence because I had to fake confidence sometimes as a kid. So I wouldn't get bullied. So I wouldn't get picked on those kind of things. 
And he saw something in me and he said, I think you could be a debater. <laughs> Later on, I found out that he just needed more people for his debate team. <laughs> <laughs> you can fog a mirror. So he's like, yeah, okay, we need you. You have a special skill. <laughs> we'll teach you. And then really, he taught me and he really helped me. And then the things that he told me to do, I did. And that's huge. It's so huge, Laura. There's confidence to be found in communications. There's excellence to be found in communication. There's power to be found in communication. But if you don't do the work, you'll never get the results. And a lot of people want to hear something and be able to do it, but you got to be able to hear something, practice something, then do it. It's so true. It's like we all want to be in the Super Bowl, but don't want to show up to the 6 a.m. practice. I'm so glad you brought the family issue because I think that plays a role that we don't take into consideration, even if you're born in America. I know a lot of the people listening to us were not born in the U.S. And I also lived in Venezuela. So I get the, the second language. You just feel like an idiot sometimes when you can't pull out that word or that expression. Or like I did so many times, I just messed up the expression. You'll get this. Anybody speaking Spanish? I was talking about a missionary in some story, misionera, but I use the word mesonera, which means a waitress. And so, of course, nobody got the joke or got the story and you feel like a complete idiot. But yes, your family makes a big difference. I think also on the introvert and extrovert continuum, where you fall on the continuum comes from a variety of factors, your family and probably your innate personality. But it's good that you overcame obstacles. So that allows you to understand where people are coming from. And I want to say one more thing that a lot of people in our profession come to it from being good at theater. They were thespian. They were the lead actor in their college musical. And then for some reason, they didn't want, I mean, I can understand not wanting to the <laughs> crazy world of trying to be on television or theater. But they are gifted and natural. And I was not either. I was a total nerd. Yeah, it's very interesting. So some people have that proclivity. They've been born to it and they found opportunities to practice along, along the way. And then they tell people what to do. For me, sure, there was some proclivity of towards, I mean, I wasn't an isolated kid. I was not extremely extrovert. I'm kind of in the middle. I'm actually more what I would call an introvert. On the inside, I like to charge by myself, but I do come alive when I'm with people. So I do have some of that proclivity towards being with people, but a lot of it was just being put in those situations. So as a kid, my parents would host these big parties and they would make me be the host. And so I'd have to greet people at the front door. Oh, fantastic. Right. I had this speech impediment and I hated that people couldn't understand what I said. So I was the driving factor and I want to be understood. And I took flashcards and I worked on those words. So even if you're speaking and you're thinking, Mike, I want to get better, get some flashcards, find the words that you have a difficulty saying and work on it or other verbal warmups and work on it. My mom said that I actually worked on it so hard. This is kindergarten, so hard as a kindergartner, I was so driven as a kindergartner that I actually ended up getting stressed and my stress caused my eyesight to go bad. They took me to a doctor and the doctor said, he doesn't have eye problems. He has a syndrome that's common in college females when they are overstressed at this new world of college and it actually causes them to lose their eyesight a little bit or to improve it. So you actually have to reduce the stress on your kindergartner. But it worked 
I worked on it. I overcame it. I ended up going into some poetry contests. I remember being nervous standing up there. I remember going into science fairs and talking about that, and I won. But I was nervous, and I worked hard, and I'm still nervous. And I worked hard, and I'm still nervous. So I want everybody to hear that. It's that hard work, but you're still going to be some nervousness. And in fact, I tell people I've written 17 books and workbooks. My first book has got over a 1,000 reviews on Amazon, and I talked about it, that you want some nervousness because some nervousness means that you care. But on the flip side of nervousness is energy. So if you aren't nervous, then you talk like this. Here's what I want to tell you today. This is what's happening, blah, blah, blah. But if you are nervous and you convert to energy, you talk like this, where you have some passion and you use that energy to fuel your words and your passion and your movement and your eye contact and all those different things that you work on. So have the nervousness, then do the work and you get the results. Just to do a recap of a great point that you just shared with us is that if you're having trouble with a particular word, whether through a speech impediment or just speaking English as a different language, like speaking Spanish, a lot of Americans have trouble rolling their R's. I know in some languages, the W and the V can trip you up. Yeah, get a flashcard and just practice it. But it's definitely doing the work and feeling the fear and doing it anyway. What I think is funny, Mike, is that You just did a great modeling of a voice without energy and inflection. That's also called monotone, also called super boring. But a lot of people think that's professional, like that's more polished. And it's not. Your CEO does not want to hear a robot. I don't care if you're talking to the president of the world or you're talking to and nobody wants to hear a robot that perfectly modulated monotone voice that you think is controlled, it is controlled. And you may think, well, but Laura talks, she's like talking to her friend over coffee at Starbucks. Well, that's what people respond to, right? Because they just feel more relaxed listening to somebody be conversational. Right. So I want to know, Mike, why do you think that competence and confidence don't always travel together? Yeah. So let me separate those into some different words for you. So confidence often is the way that you're seen. So let's put that into the representational aspect of yourself. So I'm seen as confident. I look confident. I come across confident. It's a way that I represent myself. The competence is what you do. So it's the actions that you take. So it's what you execute upon. It's what you are able to achieve throughout the day. So you got execution on one side, representation on another side. You got competence, execution. You get confidence, representation, or another way of saying this is representation is presence. Execution is executive. You get executive presence. So what is executive presence? It's the ability to marry together confident competence. So how do you execute well? Well, that's a whole different podcast. Yeah. You're on top of that. If you're a mid to high level professional, tends to be the people I work with and Laura works with. So you're already competently doing the work you do. You have the education, you have the experience, you have the drive you're going for. But the representation side is something they don't teach in college most of the time. They don't teach in high school most of the time or middle school. So you don't learn that unless your family put you in those environments or you're put there. A lot of my clients come from Eastern Asia. So I got a lot of South Korea, a lot of China, a lot of India. So a lot of the push there from what I've heard is the competence. Be good in this education to get your experience in it. 
but there's zero representation. It tends to be the same case in the Middle East where I have a lot of clients and actually really around the world. There's a few places where they work on a little bit more. So if you've gone to grad school, you worked on your competence. You didn't work on your representation. You didn't do theater while you were doing there. You didn't de debate while you were doing it. You worked on your competence. Okay, so confidence, the way you're seen comes from your representation. Now, here's what's important is your confidence and your competence or your presence and your execution go hand in hand. In other words, if you are really good at doing something, so your technical skills, your leadership, your competence is high, but your representation, your presence, your speaking is low, it will actually bring down your perceived leadership. Right. People will actually think that you are not as good of a leader as you actually are. So you're a level eight in your competence, in your ability to do things, leadership, et cetera. But your speaking is a level two. So let's average those together. People see you around four. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is not accurate. But here's the interesting thing. It's the halo effect is if you're great at speaking. So you're a level eight speaking, but you're a level one in leadership. Here's what people see you as level eight leader. Oh, Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It brings up your technical or your competence or leadership. People go, wow, that person can speak, so they must be good at what they do. Now, think about it. Think about some of the best speakers that you know. There's a good chance that they're actually not good at doing something. They're good at representing. This is why we hire actors who sometimes have zero degrees to talk about global issues. Now, some of them, some actors are extremely intelligent. Think about like Natalie Portman went to Harvard, right? So she's got the representation, but she's also got the mental competence. But others, they just fell into that role and now they're running for whatever it might be. And you're going, wait a minute. <laughs> right. I know a leader who is a level 10 speaker. He's a global phenomenon. If I said his name, many of you would know him. I know him personally and I know people who worked for him. So people sign up for his organization and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what I signed up for. And I think on the other hand, think of someone like Tony Robbins, who wrote his own book, you know, his 500 page books, and has done the work that he tells people to do. And so his competence is super high and his presence is super high. As a result of that, that's where you get executive presence at a very high level. So for you listening, your competence is high and that's where you probably focus. And now by tuning in to speak up, you're thinking, now I want to work on my representation. Good for you. The same amount of work that you need to put into your competence, you need to start putting in a diligent pattern for your representation or your presence. I love that. That is such a well-organized way of presenting that competence versus confidence conundrum. And I know it's frustrating for a lot of highly skilled technical people to see someone be so successful in their domain that they lack some of the technical chops because they're so good at communicating. Let me add to that too. There's internal and an external confidence. So internal is how I feel about my competence. External is how other people perceive you. And that's really what I was talking about in there is that representation. So here's the problem. Here's the problem is I feel extremely competent in my marketing. I feel extremely competent in my engineering. I feel extremely competent in my management. 
But because I can't represent myself well, the external confidence that I find when I'm in front of people or people see in me is lacking. Uh-huh, exactly. And let me just underscore another variation of what Mike has said is that sometimes you can come across as confident, but you don't feel it. And I don't know if the inverse of that is true, but yes, I love that internal versus external confidence. So one more question about confidence, Mike. Mm-hmm. Some people are really into their imposter syndrome. Like it's their beloved crutch that they can't do things because they suffer from this malady called imposter syndrome. What is your take on that? And what is your suggestion? I'll just say, I think if you're doing anything new, if you've been newly promoted, trying anything new or by definition, not skilled at it, and you should be a little paying attention, we'll say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your take on that? Yeah, I have so much to say about imposter syndrome. I have written several books, as I mentioned. The newest one came out from Wiley, and I actually talked a whole chapter just on imposter syndrome as a speaker. Okay. Congratulations, by the way. Getting published by Wiley is not nothing. It's quite an accomplishment. So Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. And that book's called Speak with Confidence. So if you want to hear more of my thoughts on it, you can pick that up. But here's a couple thoughts on imposter syndrome. First of all, be very careful of label. So I can understand the desire to get a label or a diagnosis, whether it's self or external, because sometimes it makes sense. Oh, and it tells you what to do. You know, I have ADHD, therefore I need to do X, Y, Z. But you want to be careful that you don't say, I have ADHD, therefore I can't do this, this, and this. My friend had difficulty for a long time, didn't understand why he was difficult. And he went to a doctor, found out he was dyslexic. For him, it was like, oh, I'm dyslexic, so I need to X, Y, Z. Other people go, I'm dyslexic, so I can't do A, B, C. Right. So when it comes to imposter syndrome, be very careful because you can't go, I have imposter syndrome. That's why I'm having a hard time. Now you just found a scapegoat, someone to blame for your lack of success. Instead, you should say, I have imposter syndrome, therefore I need to A, B, C. So use it as a way for you to say, this is what I'm doing. Now, at the heart of imposter syndrome is value. It's your value of yourself. I go into this room and I show up and everybody has a PhD. I don't. I'm not as valuable as everybody else. I need to stay over in my little corner over here. I go into this room and everybody's Mexican. This is me when I moved to Mexico in fifth grade. And I'm not. And I stand out. I have blonde hair, teeth like a horse. That would make a horse proud, gangly, awkward, etc. And I just don't look like everyone else. And I'm in an inner city Mexican school. I felt awkward. I felt like I would show up and there was a party at school I didn't know of because I didn't speak the language. So my value is not the same. It's different. And this is where we're trying to fit in. We're trying to pretend like we belong. We get that management position that we've been going for. We get there and then it feels like everybody else, we're having the Instagram effect where it feels like everybody's life is perfect and they're living their roles perfectly and we're not. You ever done that on Instagram? Yes. Your bad day. You sign into social media and everybody's living their best life and you feel like you're living your worst life. So we got that social media effect right there. 
And the issue is value. My life is not as valuable. My role is not as valuable. My whatever is not as valuable. And so we actually start questioning the value that we have. That's when imposter syndrome really starts to affect us. I'm not as good as everyone else. And then the more that we play that, the more that we feel that, and the more that we get embedded in that imposter syndrome, like dyslexic. Oh, I'm dyslexic. I can't do this, this, and this. Therefore, I won't do this, this, and this. I'm not good at writing because I'm dyslexic. I won't write. My friend said, I'm dyslexic. I'm going to work hard on this, and I'm going to learn and do this, this, and this. And now he is a traditionally published author and helps people write their books. So he took a different approach. You go, man, I'm fighting this imposter syndrome. Oh, it's an issue of value. What will make my value more apparent to me and apparent to others in my new role? Maybe for me, for example, I took a new position at one point in time in my career, and I showed up earlier than everybody and stayed later for the first three months. I was going to do this for the rest of my life. But I wanted to show people that Mike is hard at work. And I wanted to show myself that was hard at work. So I came earlier. By the time they came in, I had made the coffee for everybody. We're talking about 70 other people in the office space right there. And I was there actually done some work and greeting people as they came in. And it was uncomfortable. But I'm positioning myself like, hey, I am valuable. I know what I'm doing. So what can you do to lean into that value, to increase your value, your perceived value that you feel to yourself and you're also demonstrating the value that you're doing to others what can you do there's a whole bunch more i talk about it but ultimately don't question your value just because you're in a new role know your value well and carry your value with you wherever you go yeah and always be seeking to add more value and that's a process I'm sure you and I, we both try to add more value to our clients every day by studying and talking to people and learning and practicing scary things ourselves. I really love that. Don't focus on the imposter syndrome title or label. Focus on the value. What value do I bring? Reminding yourself. And if they promoted you or invited you to a meeting, it's not just because of your good looks. It's because the perception of value is already there. And I think Asking your boss for ideas about your presentation or how to add value to a meeting that's new to you probably would help. Let me add to that too there. Yeah, please. There's a sense of this where you come into those environments where you're new in something. I always believe in what I call the rule of thirds. The first third of the, and usually it's a year for a bigger position. So for three months, you're going to be worthless to me. In fact, you're going to take more time from me than you give. The second three months, you're going to catch up and you're going to get neutral. So it's as if I didn't hire anybody. The next third is where finally you get back like, okay, you're showing some return on investment. And the final third, so the whole year, is now you're compounded. Right. So if you're in your first three months, Go in there with just the attitude of learn, 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 and hold on to your inherent and unique value. Then in the second one, same thing, just you're learning, you're learning, and hold on to your unique and inherent value. Now, once you get past that mark and you're now into your next third, you start really leaning into your market value, what you can contribute, what you are doing for them, the value add. And then the final one, you are now building on that and you're leaning into your unique, your inherent and your market value. And you're showing people, look, aren't you glad that you hired me? 
Exactly. And taking some pressure off of yourself to deliver day two. Yeah, absolutely. When I'm hiring, I usually don't expect people for the first thirds, depending what role this is, do I kind of break it in? The first thirds might be four months altogether. One month bad, one month neutral, one month positive, one month compound. Or if it's a bigger role, it's going to be a year. And I'm thinking, okay, for that first period of time, they're going to cost me time, cost me energy. This is just learning. Right. And that's completely normal. There's no other way around that. It's not imposter. You're just brand new. <laughs> right. Exactly. And and it's actually worse if you go in, like, you're going to show everybody how it's done. They're going to hate you. <laughs> so you're just making the job worse for yourself if you're trying to be like the know-it-all, be-it-all from day one. So it's actually yeah, a great time to ask questions is when you're new to the role. There's another topic I want to get to kind of related to influence or, you know, how people ask us. It's so funny sometimes. Laura, what can I say so that people just hang on to every word? (laughs) That's a complex question, right? There's not just one thing. Although if you pass out $100 bills, that would definitely have people hanging on to every word you said. Yeah. What's your path? to speaking with more impact? Because I know a lot of us on the more introvert side, sometimes speak and we feel like we're ignored or somebody talks over us. Yeah, so I would say that learn, and this is something you have to practice, right? You can't just hear about it and do it. You gotta, if I said, here's how you run a marathon, the majority of people listening wouldn't be able to go run a marathon tomorrow. You gotta hear it, practice it, then do it. So two different thoughts. And one, it's the ending with a conviction. So you're ending down, you're intoning down at the end of your sentence. You're ending strong with your sentence. And the other one is pausing. Now watch me do this with just a filler word. I'll just say this. So this is doing it the wrong way. This is how a lot of people talk. This, this, and this, and uh, this, this, and this, 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 and this, 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 and this. Not compelling, no matter what I said, I could be saying the secret to the universe, I could give you the cure to cancer. And if I said it that way, you would have a hard time even leaning into the value of what I'm saying. Now, watch me use convictions or ending with a downtone and ending on purpose and then using pauses. And watch how you change the way you listen to me, even though I'm saying the same thing. This, 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 and this, this. This, 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 this. Yeah. I'm like, what? That's so interesting. <laughs> it's it's absolutely nothing. I'm literally saying nothing that values no content at all. Right. But just the intonation with that downward intonation, that downward inflection. And then that pause allows you to lean in a whole different way. I love that. Thank you. So practical. Downward inflection in the pause. I think the pause is the most underrated communication tool out there. I heard a podcast interview the other day with Jordan Peterson and James Lindsay. James Lindsay was a mathematician and now he's public speaking. And he said that his best speech was had happened recently. And the reason it was so good, he thought, was because it was in Europe and he was with an audience of 100% English as a second language or possibly English as third or fourth language. And he noticed at the dinner the night before that they weren't getting his jokes and that things that usually got a reaction were not getting a reaction. So he, in that dinner, 
assimilated and realized that he needed to speak more slowly and to pause and to pronounce better. And so he used that in his mm-hmm. speech the next day. And he said it was by far the best received talk, even though the content really had not changed to your point about the downward inflection, taking your time, using the pause. And it is hard, but I love that very specific tactical help in what you're going to say. And of course, you want to say something that's interesting, but regardless, you want to say it in a good way, in an impactful way. So Mike, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think our audience should know? They're all super smart, extremely good looking people who are adding value to their companies wherever they work. With 17 books, you must be a masochist because I've only written one and it was a lot harder. The last 10% is like another 200%. And the editing process is awful. Now, half of those are workbooks. That's how I say books and workbooks. Yeah, so absolutely. And people can find those at Mike Acker anywhere if you go to Amazon or something. The newest one is called Speak with Confidence. So a lot of what I'm saying is right there. That's kind of my framework. That's my masterpiece where everything's putting towards. Let me close with this. Often we wonder what people think about us. Oh, yeah. And the uncertainty of what people think about us leads to insecurity. And we lean into the uncertainty. You know, what do Laura's listeners think of me? And even if I were to seriously think about that, once I vocalized it for the first time, it came to my mind. For the whole time, I've been leaning into not the uncertainty of what you, the listener, is thinking, but I've been leaning into the certainty of what I know. I've been leaning into the certainty of what I'm teaching you instead of the uncertainty. So we get out there and we go, what does the CEO think about our presentation? Right. Am I doing as well as them? Uncertainty, 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 insecurity, insecurity, insecurity. Instead, you want to lean into the certainty of what you know. What is the point I'm getting across? What skill am I using that I've been mastering? The pause. And who am I? So I tell people in my book, and I was just in Kansas City last week teaching a whole group of 170 people this. And I teach people again and again, label yourself before you wonder what labels people put on you. So know yourself so well that when you get up in front of people, there's no label somebody could say that you haven't already thought of. Oh, his hair is gray. Yes, I've thought through my gray hair many, many times. Oh, he sounds like this. Yes, I've listened to myself many times. There's probably very little that you could say to me, critiques, and you could pull this apart. You could pull it apart and I could actually pull it apart even further. Yeah, let me tell you this, this, and this. And I should have done this and this. I could have done this, this, and this, and this. But it's because I've studied myself. So study yourself. I was so surprised. I was working with one gentleman. He had moved to Manhattan to be a VP of sales, super high position, incredible company. And he had never taken some time just to really think through who he was. So I even wrote like a little book called The Identity Workbook. It's like a little, almost like a giveaway. It's just so people can analyze who they are and come up with an identity statement. So that's my encouragement to you. Study yourself, know yourself, label yourself before you wonder what labels people put on you. I love that. Thank you so much. And so your website is mikeacker.com, right? Yep. And he's on LinkedIn. I'm sure he would be happy to connect with you smarties in the audience. Thank you, Mike. This was super helpful. 
you know, it's the difference between good and great communication, just like good and great plastic surgery or good and great golf. It's just a lot of little details. And then you have given us so many different ways to think about internal confidence versus external, the downward inflection, the pause, the not putting so much pressure on yourself, the first quarter of a new role. So a lot of little details, thinking about yourself, analyzing yourself before other people do it. So you're ahead of them. Like, yeah, I know that. I know I should be more organized, (laughs) for example. All right. This has been fun. And by the way, just so y'all know, Mike, he goes between a base in Fairhope, Alabama and Seattle, Washington. So he's almost on the East and West Coast, but definitely on the West Coast and in the South. So I think that's definitely multicultural. Thank you guys for tuning in. It's always good to come together and to see what we can do to become better communicators, to make the world a better place. And I'll catch everyone on the next episode. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.